Well, it certainly did not look good for Israel. Oh, no, no. They were all coming against him, all the nations of the world. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering the history that God has put in place so we can read it. Now, in about three minutes, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 11 as we go through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 this year. And it is very interesting. So I'd like you to stay there and and we'll study this in a moment. Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? I'm also taking my cues from Joshua chapter 11. I'm going to focus in specifically on the city of Hatsor. Ryan? Today, I'm doing a study of the mysterious long day of Joshua recorded in Joshua chapter 10. What really happened that day? Very good. Uh, Janice? Today's segment is Come to God. All right. Open up your Bible guide. Let's go to the Word of God. And let's listen. Joshua 11, 1 through 12. And it came to pass, when Jabin king of Hazor heard these things, that he sent to Jobab king of Maidan, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Aksaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. When all these kings had met together, they came, and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them, and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mizrafoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Joshua chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. Joshua chapter 11. This, this is absolutely amazing. Now we read in our assignment today, Joshua 9, 10, and 11. We're going to focus on Joshua chapter 11. What an amazing 
passage of scripture this is. And uh, as we do that, as we focus on it, it really is something. Now, I, I need to tell you that we are reading through the Bible. This is God's word. And Joshua and the Israelites under his orders were facing physical enemies of God as they delved out his justice and took over the land that God had promised to them. Now, it was a brutal reality. While hostility against God had not changed, our situation has. You see, today we live after Messiah came to earth and gave his life and paid the cost of our sin. Then he rose again. The Messiah's arrival was one of the main goals of Israel as a physical nation from the tribe of Judah. How on this side of the cross, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the culture of sin and the principalities of the spiritual ones and our own sin. We see the enemy behind the enemy. All will come under God's judgment eventually. Our role right now is to build the spiritual kingdom of God rather than the physical one. But back to Joshua. He had a job to do that we can understand in principle. He had to follow God with all of what he had. Now, through a group of kings, they allied themselves against Israel. And God told Joshua not to be afraid. God would deliver Israel, just needed to trust in God and follow him. That's what they needed to do. Now, that's interesting because today we're told oftentimes by Jesus Christ in the New Testament, follow me, trust in me, and I will give you rest. I will help you succeed. Ephesians 6 says, come to me, all you who labor. Well, that's actually uh, the other passage of Scripture, but it says that the spiritual uh, armor of God is so important. You know, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God tells us this. Now, let's keep in mind, because he says in that passage, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual principalities. Take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage as we focus on it. Uh, the 11th chapter of Joshua. This is really interesting. And we want to pray today and we want to ask the Lord, if you don't have a Bible guide, you can write to us or call us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Click on the Bible guide. It'll take you there. And let me just say that the Bible guide does cost us money. So thank you so much. And we can produce it and send it to you. And we really, really appreciate that uh, when you can give. And we are praying for you and we will do so later today or later on this program when we discover the reality of who God is and learn about him through prayer. Okay, as we focus on this, let's pray. Father, help us today. We're going we're gonna to look at chapter 11. Help us today to understand what it is you've said and teach us your way and show us your path in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Here is what the Bible says. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things that he sent to Job, Jobab, son of Madon, to the king of Shemaron, the king of Ashshaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains and in the plains of Shinroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor in the west, to the Canaanites in the east, and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, 
in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, and they all, in their armies with them, they went out, and as many people as the sand on the seashore in multitude, that's what they look like, with very many horses and chariots. And when all of these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. It did not look good for the Israelites against the huge alliance. It was absolutely devastating. But we should keep our eyes on God. He is our help when things look bad. How many times have I said to myself, keep your eyes on God. That's how you get out of this thing. Well, that's a good point. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord because the enemies sometimes look really bad. But let me tell you something. God, if we believe the God of the Bible, he is so close to us. And the enemies, and we, we've given him permission over our lives. But the enemies who persecute us, who stab us, who do all these things, they don't have God's authority on them. And God is over their authority. Now, that doesn't mean you command and this because God is teaching them as well. We need to keep that in mind. Okay, we go on to the next passage of scripture, which says this. But the Lord said to Joshua, this is important. Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before you. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all of the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook of Mizrephoth, and to the valley of Mizpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had commanded him. And he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua did what God commanded him, and he was successful. We must always do what the Lord has asked us to do, beloved. We must always do what the Lord has asked us to do. Don't do it our way, but do it the Lord's way. What is the Lord's way right now? What is the Lord's way in our situation? What is the Lord's way? We need to become more like the Lord every single day, especially this year, this week, this day. Well, let's read the last verse, verse 10, because it's interesting. It says this, Joshua then turned back at that time and he took Hazor and he stuck his king or struck his king with the sword for Hazor was formerly the head of all of those kingdoms. And they stuck or struck all of the people who were in, the, in with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. And then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all the kings of Joshua he took and he struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Which brings me to this point. Joshua not only destroyed all the kings, but their leading cities as well. Beloved, listen. 
we should always complete the will of God in our lives. How many times have I not completed the will of God in my life? Too many times. I want to complete what God has assigned me to do and called us to do. Very important. Help us, Lord, today to do that. of Hetzor features in Joshua chapter 11 as head of the allied armies, the enemies coming against Israel. Israel was, you know, on, on conquest. They were taking over the promised land and obviously that did not go over well uh, in, in the country. So we see the king of Hetzor uh, leading this alliance, meaning that Hetzor must have been a very influential city at this time. So let's focus in on Hetzor and see what we can learn about it from history and archaeology. The ancient city of Hetzor was located just north of the Sea of Galilee. Its first mention in the Bible comes in Joshua chapter 11. Jabin, the king of Hetzor, gathered together an alliance of multiple kings and their fighting men to resist the Israelites. Hetzor was the head of a major Canaanite coalition. The Bible records Israel's utter victory over this coalition, how they chased them all the way up to Sidon area, killing all that they caught, and then how they captured the allied cities, killing their kings, but leaving the cities themselves standing. All except for Hatsor. Hatsor was captured, the king killed, and the city completely razed. The head of the enemy alliance became a signal fire. Later on in the Bible, another leader of Israel had to face an enemy in Hatsor. This time, the judge Deborah led the Israelites in battle against another Jabin, king of Hatsor, and his army commander Sisera. Once again, the Israelites were successful in defeating Hatsor. Hatsor was eventually rebuilt by King Solomon as an Israelite defensive city. A few generations later, it was captured by Assyria, and Jeremiah prophesied that it would be destroyed completely by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Extensive archaeological work has gone on at Hatsor. Its upper tell boasts an ancient acropolis of 30 acres that from a bird's eye view looks bottle-shaped. Remnants to the Israelite city of Solomon that flourished for about 200 years include fortifications, a tower, homes, a water system, and a six-chambered gate. Under the Israelite city was found evidence of the old Canaanite city. Some of the finds include Canaanite temples, a section of the city wall, its corresponding moat, several Egyptian statues, a monumental staircase, and a large ceremonial palace. All experts agree that this Canaanite city was destroyed and set on fire. A thick layer of ancient ash attests to it. Inside the palace, whose walls still stand six and a half feet high, the ferocity of the fire was discovered. Based off of melted clay vessels and vitrified mud bricks, that is, mud bricks that have begun to transform into glass, the current excavator has determined that the fire was twice the temperature of a regular fire, likely due to its wooden building materials and storerooms of nearly a thousand gallons of oil. 
The palace also yielded a few statues, a jewelry box, weapons, and a lion-shaped ceremonial drinking cup. Peculiar to this destruction of Hatsor is that the targeted areas were public and religious buildings, and that the destroyers purposefully disfigured images and statues of kings and gods. This perfectly aligns with the destruction by the Israelites, as outlined in the Bible. Most scholars align it with the destruction by Joshua, but based off of the date of about 1250 BC, this would align it well with the destruction by Deborah and Barak. So as we can see, Hatzor is going to appear later on as well uh, in the time period after Joshua and the time period of the judges and beyond. So we'll, we'll come to it again as we get there. But I hope this helps you have a better understanding of where Hatzor is and, and, you know, its importance in the territories. I think it's uh, important also. We're in the book of Joshua. Yep. And uh, a lot of people don't read Joshua because it's so violent. But, you know, there's a reason that this is violent. Joshua is seen by some, the late Dr. Chuck Misler, as kind of the revelation of the Old Testament. It's very, very interesting. Very interesting book. So I encourage you to read it and stay with it, uh, with us. Okay, Ryan. All right, well, today I'm focused on Joshua chapter 10, where we read the fascinating account of what many refer to as Joshua's long day. And not surprisingly, there are many theories as to what actually occurred that day. Was it a supernatural event in which the Earth maybe stopped rotating? Or was it some kind of a natural phenomenon like a solar eclipse, cloud cover, or some sort of a weird refraction effect? Well, a natural and straightforward reading of this passage indicates that what happened that day wasn't at all normal. And so my question today is, what if the Earth did stop rotating for about a day and then returned and then resumed, rather, its rotation? What would be required for something like that to happen? There are many strange and unusual events recorded in the Bible not the least of which is the long day of Joshua during Israel's military campaign through Canaan. In Joshua 10:12, he makes this command, Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Based upon a straightforward reading of this account, the event described here is clearly not natural, but rather supernatural. This understanding has led to the very common explanation that the Earth halted its rotation for about a day and then resumed rotation. One scientist explains the requirements and problems to overcome in order for such a miracle to occur. The Earth is a spinning body, he says, and spinning bodies possess kinetic energy, and the Earth's kinetic energy is considerable. To bring the Earth's rotation to a stop requires removing that kinetic energy. This could be done by applying a torque to the spinning earth, acting as a brake. Application of a braking torque takes time. Furthermore, a brake must convert the kinetic energy to some other form of energy, usually heat. Then, after the battle was completed, the earth began spinning again, which would have required time and an accelerating torque to reinvigorate the earth with kinetic energy. But another physical principle is also involved. Moving objects possess a quantity called momentum. Dissipating the Earth's rotation required loss of angular momentum that would have transferred to the object providing the braking torque. In a similar manner, returning the Earth's spin afterward would have required the addition of angular momentum. Furthermore, objects on the surface of the Earth are spinning around the Earth's axis of rotation. 
People on the battlefield that day were moving nearly 900 miles per hour toward the east. When the Earth suddenly stopped rotating, those people and everything else on the surface of the Earth would have continued moving eastward, so they would have appeared to suddenly begin moving nearly 900 miles per hour across the Earth's surface. Even a gradual slowing in the Earth's rotation would have produced a noticeable push to the east. In a comparable manner, when the Earth's spin was returned, people and objects on the Earth's surface would experience a push with respect to the Earth's surface, this time to the west. To avoid this, God would have had to have applied the same change to people and objects on the Earth's surface that he applied to the Earth itself. Because of the numerous physical issues surrounding a change in Earth's rotation, many have attempted to explain this incredible event as either some kind of natural phenomenon, such as a total solar eclipse, cloud cover, or some sort of a strange refraction effect, or else as mere poetic hyperbole. Yet as believers, we need to remember the declaration that the prophet Jeremiah made. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Indeed, a God who can create the universe, cause a virgin to conceive, and raise the dead can certainly also accomplish this. Okay, so I have had some people make some comments about this segment, saying that it's not scientifically possible that the Earth could have stopped rotating. But that's missing the whole point that I was trying to make, which is that God can do the impossible. That's what makes it a miracle. And for an all-powerful God, a miracle like this is nothing. He created the universe, so what could possibly stop him from manipulating it? Now, it is true that sometimes God works within the normal parameters of nature, which he set in place, and we call those scientific laws. But at other times, he clearly works outside of those parameters, as seems to be the case here. Now, on tomorrow's program, we'll continue this discussion as we explore some of the naturalistic theories that people have proposed regarding Joshua's long day and why they don't work. You know, what's interesting is the fact that uh, God sets in motion everything, but then when he does something out of space and time, does it out here, and it affects space and time, we say, well, there's no way that could happen. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, that's a miracle. Yeah, exactly. That's true. So, I mean, he does miracles within time and space, yeah. and he does miracles outside of time and space. And he may have done it a different way than, you know, it may have not been that the Earth stopped rotating. It could have been a different way. But the yeah. point was simply that it, this seems very much to be a supernatural event. Very interesting. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. Okay, Janice. Okay, so I was a little bit confused earlier because of all the discussions that are going on. And I looked down at my Bible and realized that our reading today is from Joshua 9 to 11. And I usually try to focus on what you've been teaching on, but I'm actually today looking at Joshua 9 with the Gibeonites. And there is somebody out there that this message must be for you. And here was my message. This treaty with the Gibeonites, they had come to Joshua and they came up with a very crafty plan because they wanted to save themselves. They wanted to save themselves. And the scripture says in Joshua 9, it starts in verse 4 here, what I want to talk about. Now I'm going to back up to 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. 
And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And so they do. They've made a covenant and they shouldn't have made this covenant. And the Gibeonites saved themselves, but they had to do it in a dishonest, crafty way. And it got me to thinking, I know that for some people, it is very hard to put their trust in someone. Because you have trusted someone very close to you and have been betrayed. But I'm here to tell you that if you will honestly open up your heart to God, come to him. There's an old hymn that says, just as I am without one plea. Come to God just as you are. Don't try to pretend to be somebody else. God knows you and loves you. You're not an accident. You're created in his image exactly the way he wants you to be. He has a purpose for you. When you come to him honestly and ask you ask him to forgive you of your sins, if you believe that he died on the cross and rose again, confess that with your mouth and believe it in your heart. God will help you and he will begin a change in you that you never thought was possible. It's not going to be an easy one, but I promise you it's going to be the best one. So be encouraged today. Come to God in all honesty. You don't have to come with a crafty plan. You don't have to come with a bowl full of excuses. You just come with the truth in your heart and open up to him. He loves you and he will accept you with open arms. And then you can dedicate your life to follow him all the rest of the days of your life. And he will help you. He will encourage you. So don't hide. Come to Christ today. I want to pray for you because it's time to pray when, when we're in this time of all kinds of economic overturn and everything else. Father, help us today. As believers in Jesus Christ, we want to give you full rights to what we have and help us, Lord, to do the right thing the right way. And help us not simply to react, but teach us your way and show us your path. Thank you, Father, and we very much trust you. And help us, Lord, to trust you where we don't. <laughs> Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.